This forum is part of the City Club's Local Heroes series, sponsored by Citizens Bank and Dominion Energy. We're grateful for their generous support. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Maltrop, Chief Executive here and a proud member. And it is great to see all of you. Thank you for joining us here today on October 1st. We're in person for our forum today. It's part of our Local Heroes series, uh, which is designed to recognize and hear from civic leaders here in Northeast Ohio who have an important role, not only in our continuing community dialogue, but also often in our national dialogue about what matters, what's facing us, and how to fix it. The speakers represent a cross-section of the brightest thinkers and doers whose hard work is changing the way we view ourselves and our community. And so we'll be joined today by Tim Tramble. He became president and CEO of the St. Luke's Foundation in June of 2020. If you didn't know that then, there was a little pandemic happening and you might have been otherwise occupied. But he took the helm of that private foundation that has been investing in the neighborhoods of Woodhill, Buckeye Shaker, Mount Pleasant, and throughout Cuyahoga County for over two decades now. I should note that St. Luke's Foundation is a funder and has been for at least 10 years or so, maybe more. Before joining the St. Luke's Foundation, Tim Tramble ran the Community Development Corporation, Burton Bell Carr, and he also spent five years in various roles at the Cleveland Department of Public Health. In the last year, the St. Luke's Foundation has rolled out two very significant initiatives, Lift Every Voice 216 and the Resident Advancement Committee efforts that shift power to those they intend on uplifting by involving the community in the decision-making process to address racial equity, health equity, and the transformation directly to their own communities. I'll be moderating our conversation today, but first we're going to hear a few remarks from Tim Tramble, and then he'll join me on the stage for a little fireside chat, and then Q&A with all of you, friends and members of the City Club of Cleveland. Please join me in welcoming to the, our stage, Tim Tramble. Thank you very much, Dan. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for your presence. And I want to thank Dan Morthrope for inviting me to speak at the legendary City Club of Cleveland. I am here as the president and CEO of the St. Luke's Foundation to discuss our execution of our funding strategy and how we intend to operationalize equity through community responsive grant making. I commend our board and my predecessor, Ann Goodman, for aggressively centering equity in our strategy. I am honored to acknowledge the talent and the commitment of the dynamic team I work with daily to breathe life into our mission. We have here today some of our board members, some of our staff, and some of the members of our resident advancement committee. I'd like for Ann O'Brien, George Mateo, Patrick Canary, Ken Laurie, and Kathy O'Malley, and uh, Zuma Zabala to please stand.
We thank you for your extraordinary vision. I'd like Elizabeth Hunnell, Christine Manny, Peter Witt, Indigo Bishop, and Dion Huffman to please stand. We have accomplished so much in such a small period of time, and it's because we are all in the same boat, rowing in the same direction. So I truly appreciate your commitment. Finally, I would like to ask um, Tony Johnson, I think I didn't see her here, Jack Hill, Bob Render, and Miss Adriana Rodriguez to clearly stand. These are members of our resident advancement committee, and they are uh, the engine that helps us shift power to the people. They actually make the decisions for our community grants. So we truly appreciate you for what you mean to our vision, what you mean to our mission, and what you mean to our strategy. With that, I'll say that the St. Luke's Foundation has a 127-year legacy of service in Cuyahoga County first as a hospital for 103 years, and second as a foundation now in our 24th year of operation. Today our endowment stands at $220 million thanks to a very savvy investment committee led by Ann Farrell. We all at the St. Luke's Foundation are appreciative of our colleagues in the philanthropic community. We have had nothing but rich experience of collaboration, partnership, and peer-to-peer -peer learning. And those individuals and in, in, in foundations include Sue Cray and her team at the Sisters of Charity Foundation, Mitchell Balk and his team at the Mount Sinai Foundation, Ron Richard, India Pierce Lee, Lillian Curry, and the Army at the Cleveland Foundation, <laughs> David Abbott, Alicia Washington, and the team at the Gunn Foundation, Kathy Belk at the Deaconess Foundation, Susan Athens at the McGregor Foundation, and the list goes on. We thank them for embracing us and for partnering with us. It is important that when institutions talk about their history, that they do not leave out the practices of yesterday that contributed to the disparities that exist today. That is essential in healing, reconciliation, and building trust within the community. Like most longstanding institutions throughout our country, the history of St. Luke's includes an era of inequality. There was a time when the hospital separated its wards by race. There are documented accounts of discrimination, both against groups of African Americans and members and black patients of the hospital. There was a time when job opportunities at the hospital and amenities each patient was afforded was based upon the color of their skin. These realities are inescapable and undeniable, but surely if we can make it to where we are today from those circumstances, we can reach the destination that we seek upon the horizon. See, it was in 2019, before the tragic death of George Floyd, before the tragic death of Breonna Taylor, and before 
the biggest uprising of racial justice in our country. The St. Luke's Foundation in 2019 declared in its vision statement that people thrive as a result of living free of racism and poverty and experiencing equitable economic opportunities and conditions that allow them to lead healthy lives. Such a powerful vision presents an abundance of opportunities for change that don't just show up in charts and graphs, but actually results in people that they can see, feel, and experience in their life-altering conditions. That is our inspiration, that is our motivation, and that is what we aspire to. Thank you all. So uh, we're here now. I'm Dan Malthrop here with Tim Tramble. And if you're just tuning in on the radio, you're with the City Club Friday Forum. It's great to have you with us. We have a room full of fully vaccinated people. Please give yourselves a round of applause for that. Um, we're just uh, working on the microphone over here. That was a little bit of an Oscar acceptance speech. You know, I want to thank, I want to thank. It's well done. Um, but uh, kidding aside, Tim, this um, the stuff that you're doing around uh, resident voice, Lift Every Voice 216 and the, and the Resident Advisory Committee. I mean, can you talk specifically about operationally how this works, how it changes what the foundation is doing and the decisions the foundation is making? Right. So again, I like to say before I started with the foundation, the concept and the vision of the Resident Advancement Committee was conceived. And uh, there is a movement, there was a movement in foundations across the country to really think about how do you really shift power to the people. And this, was, this is a concept, uh, this is a, an approach that is used nationally where you actually create a group of residents, uh, a, um, a, a committee of your board or of the uh, foundation who make decisions on where community grants uh, go to, uh, who are the recipients of community grants. We have three types of grants. We have the community grant. The community grant is awarded to individuals, I should say, like groups of the community that are not 501c3, so they're very small uh, groups. They should know these individuals because they are individuals and uh, groups within their own community. We have discretionary grants that the staff make the decision for, and then we have board grants where we have a board process. Those are generally much bigger grants. But again, it's an opportunity for community to be a part of the solution, to be a part of saying what we need, how we need to address the problems within our community, even defining what the problems are. Um, how much, the, the, you mentioned the $220 million endowment the St. Luke's mm -hmm. Foundation manages, um, so you're giving away roughly 10 to $12 million annually, if my, if my math is correct. Um, how much of that is actually directed by community members? Right now it's just $120,000, but again, it is for community organizations, really small grassroots organizations, and so the grants are generally five to $6,000. And we have to build up the community's interest and uh, awareness that these opportunities exist for them. So I, in, the, in the first uh, 
go in, in the first cycle, the first three or four cycles, it was tough just to identify, just to find individuals who actually believed that this was possible for them. So uh, as we build that, that interest and that momentum in uh, these change agents within the community, uh, the, the, the amount uh, will, will increase. So, um, so can you tell some stories about projects that, have, that, that you funded through that that wouldn't have been funded otherwise? Well, there are many projects. You know, people ask me to. I know say, you don't want to name a favorite. Yeah, Just tell me a story. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I've learned. You know, I've only been in philanthropy for a year, but I've learned that you got to be very careful of singling out. Like your grantees and what is special. Yeah, it's sort of hypothetical, then. I would just, I would, I would just say, I would just say that we are, we, we are very uh, excited and happy around what we see in the community in regards to block clubs, individuals coming together, uh, neighbors coming together, and doing what they feel is important in, on, on their block. Uh, that is a very powerful thing. Uh, we're creating that synergy and that energy where people now know and you're giving us a platform to let more people know that it exists and uh, we're seeing significant impact and, and we're seeing people believing in the foundation and believing that uh, this is a resource that's real for them. Believe it or not, I mean people, it's, it's, it, was hard, it was hard for some people to believe that this was real. No, I know. When sometimes in neighborhoods that haven't seen investment, mm -hmm. to believe that like there is actual investment and you don't have to create a 501c3 to receive yeah. that is um, that could be hard to believe. Yeah. I, I certainly understand that. Um, Tim Trammell, can you just draw the connection for us? And I think because there's people in the audience and people in the listening audience who will say, "Well, that's nice that they're funding block clubs. What does that have to do with social determinants of health?" And that's the main. That's the mission of the of the St. Luke's Foundation is right. focused on eradicating social determinants of health. Yeah, so I, I appreciate the question. It has a lot to do with social determinants of health because when you're talking about social determinants of health and you're talking about uh, really uh, changing the trajectory of individuals, part of that where people have to understand is that the service of doing that and the power of doing that comes with individuals themselves being involved in the service delivery, being involved in conceiving the ideas that will get them to the, the place that they want to be, right? To move them from a position of dependence to independence. So often and so, uh, so in our history, we have had the situations of just serving people and serving people and never stopping to think like, are we actually empowering them? Because if you help me today and then tomorrow, you have to come back and do the very same thing for me. And then next week, you have to come back and do the very same thing for me. That is not empowerment, right? In fact, it is uh, subordination, right? Where I have to support to you because I need you, right? So to truly empower people means that you do not uh, do something that perpetuates their, your, your service to them, except, and uh, of course, with the exception of individuals who who are truly disabled and can't do for themselves. It's a, that, that is the only you know, sort of situation where, where that makes sense. So what have you seen then in the community 
as a result of this? I mean, you're, the Lift Every Voice 216 is, um, I mean, maybe you should describe that a little bit. I'm, ta I'm speaking about it as if everybody understands what we're talking about. Why don't we take a step back and ask you to describe what that effort actually is? So Lift Every Voice complements the uh, Resident Advancement Committee. Lift Every Voice uh, is a platform, it's a digital platform where we make available to the community the opportunity to communicate to the foundation directly about what their interests are uh, around the social determinants of health. We do outline the social determinants of health in plain English and uh, it, it gives them an opportunity to communicate those ideas and thoughts to us uh, regarding who serve them and who they see as the, uh, the organizations that are most impactful in their lives and what doesn't exist that should exist, right? What we should lean more into and what we should pull away from. We want to give them that power in our evaluation metric. We, we, have, uh, we are approaching our evaluation different where we actually want to incorporate the lived experience in that evaluation metric. So it gives them the opportunity to communicate with us. It gives us the opportunity to, of course, analyze that information and then to, uh, of course, uh, share that information with them and then for us to show them how we have responded to that information. So we shared a, a video prior to the forum beginning with the audience here, and, um, and I, I mentioned it to the listening audience so they can find the video on your website, and we'll tweet it out right now and, and share it on social media. Um, as you were going through and with your staff and colleagues um, were going through the information that was coming in from the community, mm -hmm. Tim, was there anything surprising or did it more just confirm for you kind of what you thought you knew about, about the neighborhood? So there, there was nothing surprising, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm going to, this is how transparent I'm going to be uh, to you and to our audience. The biggest surprise is the amount of people that actually uh, shared information. We don't have as many people sharing information as we would think. Mm -hmm. What we know is that there is 3,000 individuals per day that are logging on to lev216.org. Mm -hmm. But very few of them are completing or filling out the information. And so mm -hmm. that goes back to, and we're, we're thinking through like, okay, so what does this mean? Is it, we're, we're, of course, revisiting. Did you make it too much like a grant application? It's like <laughs> no, just too long. Right, right, right. We're, we're revisiting that, right? <laughs> we, of course, we, we, we're putting everything on the table in terms of what that is. And, but we, 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 we think that it has something to do with trust. Like, what are you really going to do with this information, huh. right? And so that's a part of what I spoke about, right? Like, we got to be honest about where we start from. We got to be honest about where the community is in regards to its perception of the institutions, right? Mm -hmm. And how they have served them in the past. We got to be honest and we got to confront that and we got to address that. And we have to build that trust within the community. And again, you can't do that without being honest about the past. If you just talk about all of the wonderful things that happened in the past without reconciling the things that have uh, contributed to where we are today. So what is that, uh, what do you think the answer is then to, because it's not just sort of about increasing engagement, it's mm -hmm. about rebuilding trust where Absolutely. it has fallen apart and building new relationships. You can't do all of that through a, a web portal. Absolutely. So 
we do way more than just have that web portal. We do more than just have that platform available, right? We are doing a lot to show the community that we're really serious. Our staff has walked the community. We've actually walked the community. We've biked the community with information about Lift Every Voice and why we're doing it, right? We've had what we call a backyard barbecue within the community uh, to show the community that you know we really are interested in, and this is real about uh, what we intend on doing with the information that we get from them. So it takes time, uh, like any relationship. You know, it takes time. Late relationships are cultivated over time, and it's mm -hmm. not what you do this day. It's mm -hmm. what you do, what you done yesterday, what you do today, and what you do tomorrow, right? You can't just show up once and say, hey, we did this, so you guys believe us, right? It's, it's a process, and right. it's going to take time. And that's the biggest surprise. It's going to take more time that, we, that I will tell you than I personally anticipated. And I like to think that I'm someone that's rooted in the community and know uh, so, you know, that was even a surprise to me. I mean, I've done, I've, I've been a part of uh, survey, uh, you know, survey collections, and it's different, and, I, and I'm understanding the difference because I've been able to work with a team to collect, you know, many surveys over a two or three month period. And I thought like, well, you know what? <laughs> You know, just the paper survey, we've been able to do better than, than, than what we're doing here. But, because uh, I, I just thought that we were going to have like 10,000 people like just giving information. We, we have hundreds of people giving information. So, um, it, it, we, we are you know, exploring and, and, and we are uh, asking ourselves those questions as to, and it, it may not be one thing, it may be a series of things, right, as mm -hmm. to, you know, how we get there. And, and we also thinking about, hey, you know, we, we know how to do this in a way where um, we get a lot of feedback and, and maybe there's a combination of doing this because it starts with the survey. And that's the thing. What people have to understand is as you are completing the survey, because people are going, we, we, we know that people are going on there for information and then they get this survey, right? And so it's like, well, you want information from me, but I thought I was going to get something from this, right? Mm -hmm. And what we have to educate them on is what you get from this is the power to influence, right? Yeah. You have the power to influence. And that is something that we know that community wanted. Do you we know see that, they that influence flowing beyond the Resident Advancement Committee into the board-directed grant giving and the, and, the, and the staff discretionary grant giving? Yeah, because so, that's where the, I mean, so, frankly, so, that's where the action is, right? Yeah, so I, I got to be careful about, you know, saying where I see, you know, <laughs> things that are of board authority, right? Uh -huh. So I, I, will, I will just say that my hope, and, and, I, and I will tell you that our board has been awesome. You know, mm -hmm. I recommended this crazy thing, and they actually approved this crazy thing. Uh, but, but, you know, we, I, I, I hope that, through the evidence of what we what information we gather, that this would allow us to move further and uh, do more around shifting power. Mm -hmm. Tim, can you talk a little bit about the service area of St. Luke's Foundation, mm -hmm. uh, Buckeye Shaker, Wood Hill, Mount Pleasant? Um, what you have the possibility, along with your partners in the CDC community, to to make some substantial change to the built environment mm -hmm. there 
and, um, and to the economic conditions in which people are raising families and living their lives. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of where you see you can you and your colleagues can make the biggest difference? Yeah, so I want to be careful about how I, <laughs> the reason why I want to be careful is because we're telling like community. It's like walking on hot coals no, over so here. So here's the thing, we're, we're, we're telling the community we want to hear what they have to say, yeah. and then I come in and I say, you know, and I, I speak a vision that might not be consistent or just, just my vision, right? So I, I do want to be careful, like we're really sincere about what we hear, like mm -hmm. we want to learn from the community and we want that to drive what we do. So that that is like real. But everyone who know me, they know I do have a vision for the community, right? So I just want to be careful about, you know, espousing my vision and but but at the same time promoting lift every voice right here saying that we want to hear your voice. We want to uh, follow your direction. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's can it be a both line. and. Can it be a both yeah, and? Yeah, it could definitely be a both and. But I just wanted to make that clarification that Fair. you know we we are we are sincere and we don't we, we're not pre you know pre, we're not we're not we don't already have the all of the answers. Okay. That being said, for me, Tim Tramble's vision for the community is that uh, we recognize that in order to be people like to use the word community of choice. Um, in order to be a community of choice, you have to be distinctive. And you have to have amenities that are specific and unique to that community. And you can't be a copycat because if you're a copycat, then those things that you create within your community, people see that in other communities. That is their identity, right? So you have to have your own community identity. I believe that there is an opportunity for our communities to be distinctive and doing things that have never been done uh, within our And I'll give you some examples. Like, there are innovations that are taking place in this world that, you know, we're just scratching the surface on. But they, they are coming, right? And so you have situations and things like the Tesla wall or the Generac uh, battery storage, right, mm -hmm. where individuals actually can disconnect from the grid, have sun power uh, powering their home, powering the battery, and then the battery, just like an electric vehicle, we all see that that's on the horizon, and in the next 10 years, we're going to have more electric vehicles than we have ICE vehicles. Uh, so I think that recognizing the future and where the future is going, and 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 establishing the, this sort of, um, this, this, this community that has amenities of the future that is uh, out front doing things like, imagine if we had geothermal heating in the winter and cooling in the summer in a community, uh, a full community, right? Imagine if everyone had a Tesla wall or a Generac battery storage where we can disconnect off the grid. Imagine if we had that. And the geothermal system was managed by people in the community. Like these are things that no other community has done that would distinguish this community. And not just distinguish it locally, but distinguish it globally. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I mean, so so is that is is that like do you have? But you, I mean, a foundation. The challenge you have, right, is that you're just a foundation. You've got Absolutely. the money, but you don't have like you're not running an organization Absolutely. that can take that money and build that housing or rehab that housing right. to and and create those that whole you know a whole block that is disconnected from. And the that grid. might not be it. My point is that whatever we do, it mm -hmm. has to be. It has to give the neighborhood an identity that's mm -hmm. special, that's distinctive, that makes it that neighborhood, right? Like we can think of neighborhoods, Tremont, right? You immediately have a sense, right, of who and what that neighborhood is. And it's a positive sense, right? And you, 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 we want you to think of you, Woodhill. We want you to think of uh, Mount Pleasant, you yeah. know, and, and think of something that is forward thinking. Mm -hmm. Think of something that is distinctive in a way that mm -hmm. others are interested in, that attracts others, that attracts people from all economic uh, income um, um, classes, yeah. right? We, 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 we want to do things that, that are not the cookie cutter, that are just, you know, sort of simple development. But it does, you know, I'm, I'm talking about things that the reality is that it, it requires like really out of the box thinking. Yeah. And, and that's the good thing about a lot of the change that we see taking place today in, in regards to leadership and so forth. When I think about those neighborhoods, um, there are a tremendous number of assets that can be built on. I mean, in Buckeye Shaker, you have Shaker Square, which has is a, certainly at an inflection point, mm -hmm. um, and the Larchmere neighborhood, which is you know kind of thriving by by many measures. Um, you've got Luke Easter Park in Mount Pleasant. Absolutely. You've got um, you've got a really successful permanent supportive housing right there yeah. on Buckeye, right. um, and uh, and you have a a lot of opportunity to reinvent retail um, there as well. Uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm framing that, that there's another way to look at opportunity right. to reinvent retail right. as like empty storefronts. Right. But, um, but, there does, but there is a, a, the infrastructure of a thriving commercial district that is not yet thriving. Mm -hmm. um, so it does seem to me that, um, that there's, there is definitely potential and potential, to, and not that when I say the word potential, it means like, oh, there's no assets. No, there's lots of assets there, plus the, the rebuilding of Woodhill, of Woodhill Estates, which is yes. uh, how many, I mean, that's a, a, how many millions of dollars investment that's about to happen? Uh, it's 35 million that, that uh, the Housing Authority is receiving mm -hmm. from HUD, but of course, that is just a portion of what's going to be invested. So I would say at least, I don't know the number. I don't know the number, but it's yeah. a lot. I, I would it's say, <laughs> based on yeah. what I know about development, yeah. you multiply that by, yeah. by three. Okay. We're here with Tim Tramble. We're going to get to the Q&A uh, in just a second. Um, let me remind you that this is part of our Local Heroes series, and Tim Tramble is president and CEO of the St. Luke's Foundation. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students from Warrensville High School, um, and those of you joining us via our live stream or the radio broadcast on 90.3 WCPN, Ideastream Public Media, they're our primary media partner. If you have a question here in the audience, we ask you raise your hand, and then uh, our staff will, um, will direct you to the microphone. We don't want to create a big backup at the microphone, so one at a time over there. Um, and if you are unable to make your way to the microphone, just let the staff know and they'll bring the microphone to you. If you'd like to tweet a question, you can tweet it at the City Club, or you can also text your question to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794 to text your question, and we'll work it into the program. 
see we have our first question. Let's go. Yes, good, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Uh, my oh. name is Marilyn Burns. Hi, Tim. Good to see I you, Just Burns. first of all, I want to say uh, I appreciate uh, St. Luke's Foundation for all the support that they have given me as a resident and as a community leader. My question is this morning, I heard you talk a lot about uh, health deterrence but, and social deterrence. How important to you is it about building the spirit first of a community? We talk about foundations. When I think of foundation, I think about something that is being built upon. And as you build on something, you have to first of all start with the spirit. So let's talk about the spirit of communities. And how important is that to you? So, Ms. Barnes, I know her very well, and she is, <laughs> she is a matriarch of our community. We really appreciate you, Ms. Barnes. Absolutely. You know, the social-emotional health of individuals is a part of the social determinants of health. And it is uh, one of the things that we have, uh, social connections and uh, well-being of our families uh, as a part of our strategy that we support. So it is one of those ingredients to success. You can't have success of a community without having a community. You know, we used to have pride in our communities. When I was a kid, I, my, my mom couldn't afford to send me to private school, but all of my brothers before me, they, um, they went the wrong way in junior high. So she did everything that she could to put me in Lutheran school in the seventh grade. And I cried. I did not want to go to Lutheran school. I had a sense of pride at that age of, I believe, 12 or 13, that I wanted to be with my friends and my community. And somewhere along the way, we lost that. I remember talking to my nephew about 10 years ago. And I had this pride to go to East High. And eventually, eventually, um, she was convinced, and a lot had to do with the cost of the high school, to, to, to let me go to East High. And um, you know, one of her friends told her that you know, he's going to do whatever he's going to do either way. So let him go to the school that he wants to go to. I wanted to go to the school that I grew up seeing from my porch. I saw East High. I had pride in East High. And my nephew, uh, who's about 15 years younger than me, and he, he didn't go to East High. And I asked him, you know, why? And he said, no one, no one wants to go to East High. Like, we've lost that sense of pride within our community. And I think that that's one of the things that we have to find a way to get back in our community. I think everyone, I still wear my high school classroom, and it's not just for East High. It's for all CMSD schools. I'm proud of every CMSD graduate as a CMSD graduate. And we got, we got to get that back in our neighborhoods. And part of it in, in addressing the social determinants of health is building the pride of where we come from, who we are, and what we've overcome. Next question. Our next question is a text question. How has your previous position in a community development corporation informed how you lead in the philanthropic sector? So, you know, I, I think that's evident, right? Lift every voice. I mean, it's the blueprint for community development. Community development, it's about you can't work upon the people. You have to work with the people, right? And so to be quite honest, 
uh, what I'm doing here. You know, other places in uh, the country, you know, community development executive directors are like highly sought for bigger positions. In Cleveland, like it, it takes a while. You guys don't appreciate the, I mean, the, the general work that it takes to lead a community development corporation and to all my brothers and sisters in the community development field, you know, fighting that fight, you know, uh, we, 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 we honor you. It is tough, difficult work, but it is grounded on being connected with community and not directing, but following the voice of the community. Hi. Um, so I first would like to commend you for bringing some democracy uh, and the voices of people that you're lifting into the decisions of w these grant processes. My question is, from what I've heard, it sounds like you're bringing the community voice into questions of who gets the money. Are you also going to be trying to bring some of that voice into how the money is spent? A lot of the people that I've talked to who apply for grants will have a really cool idea and then they get the grant funded and they get all of these earmarks on like how it needs to be spent and like here's your portion of the pie and they're thinking the person who's giving me this grant has no idea how this is going to work. They're trying to pre-spend this for me. Yeah, and so that's a fine line for uh, the philanthropic community in general, right? is not being prescriptive. Now, uh, we have a strategy in community responsive grant making. The concept of that is from what foundations, tip, their typical approach. There's two typical approaches. There is responsive grant making, which means the foundations are not prescriptive to the nonprofit organizations. The nonprofit organizations propose they, 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 they inform the foundation of what the challenges are within the community, and they uh, present a solution and a plan, and the foundation awards it, right? And then there is the strategy approach, where the foundation has a strategy, and the foundation uh, does prescribe, like, these are things that you have to do. Most of the foundations in Cleveland we have a hybrid of that, where we do have a strategy. We want to address the social determinants of health, but we don't prescribe how we get there, right? We look at the, the, the nonprofit community. The difference of, of what we're pushing in St. Luke's is that we don't just want to look at the nonprofit community. We want to hear from those who are on the ground who are actually experiencing right, these issues within the community. Good afternoon. Um, you know, there are several different theories about community development. One is that um, you want to lift all boats, that you, you, money from public sector and philanthropic sectors should be spent across the city and politicians, you know, campaign on that. Another theory is that you, the money should go where it can do the most good and most possibility for development and that really by attrition that there are some parts of the city that maybe don't money where money should not be spent I was wondering your thoughts on those two different theories Wow <laughs> I, I, I say wow because I, I really have some real out-of-the-box thinking on that and I think my thinking might even be controversial so, I hope so. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so I told you guys what I think that we should do as um, in our communities. Like we should look to 
make each of them a special place to live, right? Uh, and, and, and not just shoot for local special identity, but an identity that's like world class, right? And so I, I do think that we are at a place in some of our communities where it would be beneficial and it would create a, a, a great opportunity to rebuild. I mean, to just clear and rebuild. I know that's very controversial. I, I, and, and I don't know if my board appreciate me sharing that. But I actually, I, I do. I mean, there, there are some streets in, in some communities. I mean, we've seen Detroit. We're not as bad as Detroit. But there are some places where you have one or two viable homes on a street, and then if you go 10 blocks, you got three or four, or maybe seven or eight viable homes in a 10 block area. And we can do something to, to support those who are there, right? And make them a part, the key is to make sure that they are a part of the change, whatever the change is, but then you can do something that is like, really high scale, really, uh, you know, just transformative within the community. Because we try to, like, we, we just demolish, demolish, and then we try to rehab, and then we build a house. You know, the reason why lifestyle centers work is because it's all new, right? And no one, no one that invests feel like they're investing by themselves. Ken Laurie knows this very well. Uh, he was a builder in Central, and no one, I, I remember when I started at Burton Bell Carr, and some very respected people within the community were, were advising me and said to me, you know, truly, they have you doing an impossible task. They have you building homes in the poorest neighborhood of the city where only thing, the only things that are surrounded are the public housing, uh, the, the public housing estates and cemeteries, <clears throat> excuse me. So how are you going to get people to live there? The way we got people to live there is that we had 40 spec units being built all at one time. And people saw the transformation of that, right? People invested because they knew they weren't going, they weren't going in alone. Right, And so when we build these one here, one there, one here, one there, it's difficult for people to get people to see the vision. And so that's how we made it work in the poorest neighborhood of the city. But the poorest neighborhood in the city at that time had been just, it, it, I mean, there was nothing on most of those streets. And I think that you know, we have to do a very similar thing. You're up, sir. Yeah. Good afternoon, Tim. Uh, Bob Rinder. I'm not wearing my rack hat today. I'm doing my community activist work. So uh, just for the listening audience, they need to understand that you did something that is unheard of. Tim and 20 members of his staff were riding their bikes in the neighborhood. I don't know of any philanthropic organization that got their senior staff and ever done that. And he was doing what James Brown said, if you're going to get involved, you got to get in deep, okay? <laughs> he is doing that. He's putting his money where his mouth is. 
when you ride the neighborhood, I'm a precinct committee person, if you walk the neighborhood, you see things that you don't see driving Absolutely. in a car or on lolly to trolley. You see it close up. You see the deterioration of the homes. You see the problems that people are having day to day. I commend you. Keep that up. My question is, there used to be the Bright and Beautiful Block Contest that was sponsored by CEI and the Call and Post for 25 years. Neighborhoods would compete for prizes, and they would all go down to the, what's the hotel downtown? The Renaissance? The Renaissance, yeah. A thousand people would show up, and they would have awards, money prizes, trophies. Uh, I hope you would consider bringing that back, Tim. Okay. You got to learn more about it. I'm sure you'll tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Bob. I do know Bob, and he is a patriarch within the community. Thank you very much for all that you do, Bob. Next question. In the last uh, primary, we had less than a fifth of the whole city coming out to vote. That's right. And in your neighborhood, Ward 7, it was under 10%. Um, how can you take this community voice project and then parlay that into greater voter engagement? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and that is, my staff, we, they know that like one of our meetings, I actually brought that up like this is what we have to deal with and this is kind of when we are trying to figure out what the issue and the problem is right it's the apathy that exists but we have to recognize why the apathy exists you just can't define a problem and don't define and figure out the 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 cause of the problem there's a reason why people are apathetic to uh, voting and to uh, participating in things and that's why I said you know we have work to do and it isn't a thing that you do today or do yesterday it's a continuation of work like Bob Render said we have to be out in the community we have to show that we are sincere and we have to do things in action not by talking not by having a wonderful uh, a wonderful vision statement right the the key to the progress is in the doing right it starts with the wonderful vision right but the key to getting people to believe and getting people to be involved is in the doing and we have to continue to do that and we will how you doing Tim's good to see how you. how you doing my friend it's right. a pleasure to see you here yes, dr. Yes. Goler yes um, I just have a question I mean there's a saying that says uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, 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 I'm just curious. You mentioned a lot of foundations in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And you look at our communities, and there's been a lot of money that's been poured into our neighborhoods over the years. Mm -hmm. But you look at our communities, and we're suffering, mm -hmm. right? And so I'm, I'm just curious to know, in terms of scale, how do you, because, I mean, you, you can't argue that there's been some good things this happened in, in our communities and neighborhoods. But how do you take the uh, lift every voice and, because uh, I love your approach, but take it to scale where more of the masses of people are benefiting versus uh, individuals or more of a micro level benefits? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and part of it is sort of recognizing what the history has been, right? Because when we ask ourselves, think about all of the 
millions of dollars that have been poured into our community. And you ask yourself, like, who benefited, right? So if we change the answer to that, I believe that we get way more progress than where we are today, right? And we do ask ourselves, we actually, that's an equity question in our application. Where will the money land? Tim, good to see you again. Great to see you. Um, my question is, there, there seems to be a duality in the communities in which we live. Um, my family and I, we kept the inherited homes, so we have homes in Glenville, in Mount Pleasant, and in the Lee Miles area for a purpose, because in our, our motto is instead of having someone you know, in our family pay a landlord, we might as well keep those homes in the family. So in the communities, when people attain a certain level of success, they leave. And it's not any fault of theirs, but how can we build these communities if we lose so much of our dollars and our talent you know, to the suburbs, which is totally their prerogative, but how do you see that? Is it building the communities by finding talent from other cities, states, and bringing them in? Or can we you know, fight the battle of losing people in our communities and really building from within? And like you said, keeping that heritage, that history, and building on that from within. Yeah, yeah. So, um and I think of your question, I mean, we don't, I don't have all of the answers, but I definitely think that we can do more as individuals in realizing that we have the power to influence our environment than it has to influence upon us. You know, that, that is something that, you know, I, I say to young people, right? Don't think that your environment define you. You can define your environment. And so, thank you. And so I want to be respectful of those that do leave, but we have to be, for us that don't, for us that decide that we want to stay, uh, we have to be those models. And we have to tell the story. I tell the story of living on East 89th off of Cedar. I tell the story of how I've never been robbed, right? There are some people that have, that's all, that's all you hear. You hear about all of the negative. You know, our home has never been, have never been uh, um, burglarized, but that's all you hear about our community. I've been in my home, we've been in our home, we built our home 26 years ago, and we've never had that type of altercation, and guess what? Everyone on my street know that between eight and five, no one's there. Everyone knows that. But they are protectors, they are supporters, they are advocates, they are friends. And that's why I say we have to get back some of that old, that old culture, you know, village raising a community. Where you have that, you have that stability. Now, of course, we all know that things happen within our community. And uh, if you are doing the right thing, believe it or not, those very people that pe pe that, uh, that perpetuates uh, the negativity, they respect you, and they see you as an asset within your community, and you're protected. If, but they have to know that you're real, and that you're there for them, and that you don't have your nose up, and that you're like, 
thinking that you're better than them as you walk or as you traverse your community. Tim, is it from a community development standpoint, though, isn't part of the solution, I mean, not so much about individuals and how they, and their, their own posture towards their communities, but about the different kinds of housing opportunities that are available for people so that as they, as their needs and desires change, there's something else for them in the neighborhood or in a nearby neighborhood rather than in uh, another municipality. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, I mean, we don't, we don't, we don't have an absence of places that we can build, right? Mm -hmm. um, I was only in my 20s. My wife and I, we were fresh out of college, and we built. And that, that's, that's a, like, that is a, a, a asset. That is an opportunity. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can't. Something can, you can afford you, you to do in Cleveland that you can't do in other places. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Like, they're, they're, you can't go everywhere as, um, individuals that are building your that are buying your first home and build right right and that that's one of the few competitive advantages that we have right mm -hmm. is that you can actually build a home a home I mean it's getting more and more expensive because of inflation and, and the cost of materials but I mean you can build a quality home in the city of Cleveland because you don't have to pay for the land uh, for two hundred thousand dollars I know for some that sounds like a lot of money but you go to uh, other places and you're paying $200,000 for someone that lived in a home for 50 years. Mm -hmm. Hi. <clears throat> I want to actually address a, little, uh, a question then that you raised uh, in my head as, as part of the board for St. Luke's when you asked if um, the spirit of lift every voice is actually also something that transfers into making decisions around bigger grants. Uh, by the board, and I'm going to say yes. Just yesterday, um, we unveiled the breaking of the Ubuntu Gathering Place for East End Neighborhood House, a project that we've been working on forever. Um, and the St. Luke's Foundation was actually really responsible for moving that needle forward by making the biggest uh, contribution and investment for that park to happen. So. Is you know it's really important that the leadership of the organization has is actually driving the same mm -hmm. motive for lift every voice to bigger um, decisions. But with that, I also want to ask Tim, um, how do we then engage other funders, not just within the foundation world, but specifically around the public sector, to see the value of again not just granting grants to organizations to put out outputs. Um, and sometimes outcomes um, based on you know their own directive. But how do we get other funders to understand the value of seeing what's necessary in the community? That we may have an idea, you know, to serve as the community, and we have input and expertise. Uh, so to also see us in the makeup of how do we implement that? Because I think that that's what the St. Luke Foundation is doing. How do we get other funders to join in that effort to make that happen? Zuma, I sincerely appreciate you helping me, right, and, and bringing to the forefront that we are sort of, we, we have this philosophy that permeates not just with the community grants, but throughout all of our grants. Thank you very much. I, I should have made that point earlier. I appreciate you getting up to make sure that people understand that it's not a place for how we are looking to 
operationalize equity in every area of our grant making. So thank you very much. Tim Tramble, give him a round of applause, please. Our forum today is part of our Local Heroes series, which we uh, present in partnership with Citizens Bank and Dominion Energy. We welcome guests at tables hosted by East End Neighborhood House, Jordan Community Resource Center, Legal Aid Society of Greater Cleveland, Metro Health Foundation, Neighborhood Leadership Institute, Policy Matters Ohio, the St. Luke's Foundation, and Warrensville Heights High School. We're happy to have you all here. Join us next Friday for a forum uh, presented in partnership with the Deaconess Foundation called Preparing for the Jobs of Tomorrow. Tickets are still available. I hope you can join us for that. And tune in Monday, October 11th for our general election debate in the mayor's race that we are presenting in partnership with our friends at IdeaStream Public Media. That will air at 7.30 p.m. on WVIZ, on WCPN 90.3, also on uh, IdeaStream's website, also on our website, cityclub.org. And um, the following that, we'll have one-on-one -on -one conversations with both of the candidates on October 13th and the 14th. More information on our website, cityclub.org. Friends, that's the end of our forum. Thank you for being a part of it. Our forum is adjourned. Thank you, sir. Well done. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.